0: This is Outside Shots, a college basketball betting podcast with Eli Hershkovich.
1: Seven seconds to go, three-pointer. Oh, Double water.
0: Covering game-by-game odds and futures markets. It's Outside Shots, presented by the Lions.
1: shake, crossover, step. Another edition of Outside Shots presented by TheLines.com. Myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Eli Herskovich, and you can follow The Lines on Twitter at TheLinesUS. I'll introduce my guest to my right virtually here in just a second, but it's the Sweet 16 edition of Outside Shots. And before we get started, remember to give the video a thumbs up, subscribe, and ring that bell to get notifications wherever you find a new episode of Outside Shots, whether it's YouTube, especially if it is YouTube, give the video a thumbs up. And again, subscribe. Ring the bell, too. Thelines.com is giving away another $100 Amazon gift card in our daily, whenever there is a March Madness game, that is. Pick'em Contest. For more details, head over to play.thelines.com. And as always, join the Lines Discord betting channel to get notifications whenever any of our staff members places a bet On the big dance. So without further ado, pumped to introduce my co-host for back-to-back weeks, Justin Perry at Justin Perry 8. He does the betting product for also the content lead for Shot Quality. Follow them on Twitter at Shot Quality and at Shot Quality Bets. Justin, hectic week. Last four days, last six days, last seven days, eight days. Whatever you want to say, numbers wise, hectic month for us. And we finally have reached the Sweet 16. Yeah, I I, well, first of all, Eli,
0: thank you for having me back on the show. Really excited to be here. It was an awesome weekend. I probably looked at my TV for more consecutive hours than I do any other weekend of the year, but all well worth it. We had so many great finishes, uh, some really, really crazy end to the last game of the weekend there, I was on Gonzaga minus the four and a half. So I'm still kind of dizzy from what happened at the end of that (laughs) one. But uh, no, I mean, that's why we do it. We love it. Uh,
1: Epic wins, epic losses. They really only happen like this in March. Of course. And we'll get to you. Don't worry, Justin. I'll be calling your name again when we get to Gonzaga TCU here. Maybe (laughs) throwing stuff around your apartment, potentially. We'll see how, how you deal with some of your bad beats for your bets during the big dance. But A couple of notes I want to get to here, just coaching-wise, in the Big East, off the bat, Ed Cooley going to Georgetown and Rick Pitino going to St. John's. Not that we're going to spend any time on it, really, but it's interesting because it's kind of a lateral move for Cooley, but Providence is going to be an absolute... You remember when Texas Tech faced Texas when Chris Beard returned to Lubbock? Really quick here. That's what it's going to be like when Ed Cooley goes back. Might be worse. (sighs) I agree. It's tough. Cooley really picked that
0: program out of the dirt. And I think that's what makes the separation so hard for Providence fans and so shocking for anyone who follows the Big East. I think, you know, there might be some other stuff that we just don't know about going on here because of the optics. It just feels like there must be. But, uh, you know, he's going to have a much more interesting recruiting destination than Rhode Island now. So we'll see what he's able to do
1: down there in the D.C. area. And then you got Rick Patino at St. John's. It's a, You have, what, three Big East teams in the Sweet 16 yeah. and two major coaching moves. So awesome. Not just, I mean, not that I care about hyping up the Big East conference. I guess I'm a DePaul grad and I hate DePaul basketball. So that shows you or tells you all you need to know about my love for the Big East. But it's exciting news for college basketball to get Rick Patino back into that conference for sure. In red right? too, you know. Exactly. A little similarity between his this team, this program, and his Louisville days. But want to go through our best call individually for the weekend and/or last four days again, first round, second round of the big dance, and worst call. Worst bet, worst futures bet, whatever it may be. So my best call, Justin, I thought, was getting in on that Arkansas ticket to win the West region at 20 to 1. Hogs are in the sweet 16 and overcoming that 12-point deficit in the second half against Kansas. Devo Davis was unbelievable down the stretch in that game, really second half onward, especially, I know he fouled out with, what, two, three minutes to go, but one of the best ball hawks in college basketball, one of the best on- or off-ball defenders in the country, and they have a lot of them. Jordan Walsh was fantastic on Jalen Wilson in the second half, and Anthony Black, who's a projected top five pick or at the very least lotto pick was excellent as well on Grady Dick, not giving them much airspace. I know Wilson and Grady hit some, a couple of big threes to extend Kansas's lead when they were up by double digits, but definitely notable how good Arkansas's perimeter defense was considering that was a bit of a liability for them especially in SEC play but it wasn't just Davis offensively Ricky Council hitting some big shots in the mid-range and then Kamadi Johnson with the big putback Jordan Walsh with the huge offensive rebound to get Council those two free throws and then Arkansas goes on because Wilson tried to intentionally miss the free throw he makes it of, of his second attempt or on his second attempt and then Kamani passes it to black and the game's over. So awesome to see my West region future have a shot with two games go. left. Very exciting yep. stuff. Now, worst call wise for me, Justin was my Indiana future, because if you watching the second half, it was a tale of two stories or kind of sorta because Indiana made that run to start the second half. I think it was like a 7-0 run off the bat. They go up, believe three points because Jackson Davis made one or two from the free throw line. And then the wheels came off. Miami, just incredible box score for the Canes. It just shows you not to, I'm not one of those people that watches a game and it's truly the eye test of like a lack of effort. That's not what I've tried to dictate here, but Miami with 20 offensive rebounds, 29 second chance shots, they rebounded. So just overall, they rebounded 51% of their misses over 50% of their misses. They got back wild and O'Meara was dominant on the glass. And you would think he's kind of at a disadvantage a little bit, just in terms of going up against Jackson Davis, who's a little bit bigger overall and Indiana, it was pretty clear cut just based off of that performance. And overall throughout big 10 play, they ranked 209 across college basketball in defensive rebounding rates. So it showed up there and I I kind of banged my head against the wall here, just pregame the way I thought about the game, the way I wrote up the game and what ensued because it was very similar to how Indiana matched up against Iowa over the last two years with Mike Woodson going up against Fran McCaffrey, especially the last matchup at assembly hall. Now I know that was a little bit of a letdown for Indiana off the Purdue win at Mackey, but Jalen Huchifino got wrecked off ball, whether it was especially Jordan Miller, but Isaiah Wong too, and on or off ball, Indiana's defense was atrocious. Those guys went off combined for 46 points and in shot quality, the point differential in terms of the final score was not far off from the actual final score in that game.
0: Yeah, yeah, we, we love to see those accurate ones, right? There's going to be uh, always a good chance that we land pretty close to that number because, well, we like to think it's a pretty actu- accurate metric. <laughs> For me, though... Honestly, like my best call, I think, from the first two rounds was probably Tennessee to win that part of the region. Honestly, I think calling nice. them over Duke was a great one. I was sitting there when they came out with a line with Duke favored saying it shouldn't be like this. It should be Tennessee minus two, three points. Of course, they get it done. Looks really nice in hindsight. Always easy uh, to look good when you make a right call. But <laughs> I also put a little bit too much of my uh, bracket on Arizona. I had them as a solid leverage play. People were staying away from them. And clearly there was a reason. And I'm so annoyed with myself because I was one of those people sitting here the entire season saying Arizona plays with their food. They don't take things seriously enough. They really kind of don't close out games at the end. And Princeton was able to get by them, make my bracket look pretty terrible in the first day. Really regret that. And then, I mean, I don't know if the Memphis FAU game is even one where you can have too much of a regret. It kind of just didn't go Memphis's way at the end. They were a uh, elite eight team for me as well. I think even Final Four team in my bracket. So I had a big run on them. I really like Kendrick Davis. So that was disappointing to see. But what are you gonna do? They really should have gotten that timeout in my opinion. But I thought it was a pretty successful tournament. The shot quality value bracket did pretty well. We did have Arkansas. We had like, you know, uh, Purdue going down a little early. We had um, a couple of these upsets happening that, you know, actually did. So pretty excited to see some of the data actually effectively giving people a chance to win some brackets. A lot of basketball left, though.
1: Yeah, just going back to that Arizona game quickly. Courtney Ramey, shot selection. Yeah, that was was rough, my man. That was... Down the stretch, but you know we're not. We're gonna move on from the rough beats or bracket beats, whatever you want to call it. For me, futures beat with Indiana. Just not getting Xavier Johnson back too. Obviously, hurt Indiana defensively, especially against athletic guards like the Canes have. And we'll talk about Miami and Houston here in a bit. But here's the rundown for. This edition of Outside Shots, the Sweet 16 preview, as always presented by thelines.com and our friends over at Shot Quality. We'll talk about them. You, your company, Justin, here in a bit. But we'll dig into Michigan State, K-State, chronological order here for the Sweet 16 schedule. That's up first. Yukon, Arkansas. Up next, Tennessee, FAU, and UCLA Gonzaga to round out the Thursday slate. Then Bama, San Diego State, Houston, Miami. Creighton and Princeton. Considering that's the worst game on the Sweet 16 card, I think we got a really, really solid schedule here uh, from Thursday through Friday. And then Texas against Xavier. Cannot wait for that game. Epic stuff. That nightcap at the end of that one is going to be great. We're going to have a good finish, that's for sure. 100%. And I'm sure there are people listening that are questioning that comment, but I'm with you. And I'm very excited to break that game down here in a bit. But going back to... Kansas State and Michigan State. So Kansas State is the three seed in the East region and Michigan State is the seventh seed. Yet Michigan State, similar to the Kentucky line, is a short favorite here. Michigan State minus two is the current spread as of Monday night. Opened MSU minus one. Total 137, 137.5, it opened at 136.5. So just going back to the under stuff that we saw in the first couple of rounds, I have a piece on thelines.com breaking that down with unders cash in at about a 66, a little bit above a 66% clip over the first two rounds and more detail as to why over at the lines.com. But a little bit of steam so far earlier in the week towards the over. Not that a point matters, but it kind of does when we're, when we're discussing college basketball total. So, Justin, I'll let you tip things off here. Michigan State minus two against K-State at the Garden.
0: Yeah, this is uh, going to be a great one. I'm actually going to be in attendance for this game. Going to head down to the Garden on Thursday. So uh, look out for someone wearing some shot quality gear, screaming their head (laughs) off. It's going to be a good time. I'm really excited about this. Of course, people were expecting maybe a little bit of a different matchup here. It feels like everyone really wanted Kentucky and Duke at the Garden. Neither team will be there. Uh, So look, uh, it makes the ticket prices a little bit better for me. I always appreciate that. (laughs) So yeah, actually, shot quality is going to agree with the line on this one. We have it as 71.1 to 68.7 in favor of Michigan State. I think this is going to be a great game. Of course, we saw Marquise Noel put on a show in his last game out. And he's back home in the place he's from. He's a New Yorker. So I think he's going to be super hyped to play at the Garden. But I don't know. Michigan State played a really, really solid game their last time out. I don't think there was anything too fraudulent about their performance. Looking into the shot quality numbers for that game, we expected them to beat Marquette by five on the expected. Of course, they got it done by nine. That's pretty much within regular standard deviation and error for me. So I'm not really going to look too deep into that. Pretty convincing win. Uh, I I really do think Michigan State comes in and has a good shot to get this done. We're projecting them to win it 64% of the time. And that's tough, you know, seeing the lower seed, but they've definitely played very well. Marquette is, you know, put a good run on them to try to come back. USC, pretty solid
1: team as well. Uh, They've been playing pretty well since that Ohio State loss in the uh, conference tournament. A couple of notes there, and you bring up the shot quality score with Michigan State. I don't want to go back to Kansas State, Kentucky first. So normally when you look at a box score, especially with Kentucky, just going back to over the last three or four years, they haven't had a ton of perimeter floor spaces, especially when they struggled, I think it was three years ago. But Kentucky shot 4 of 20 on threes, and I think this speaks to the shot quality score with Kentucky uh, hypothetically beating Kansas State, Marquise Noel, on the shot quality box score. So Katz shot 4 20 from three Antonio Reeves, one of 10. He got a lot of open looks. So that agrees with the eye test. And I also think it correlates to Michigan State hypothetically getting some positive three point shooting regression. They shot two of 16 from deep against Marquette. Jordan Akins and Tyson Walker combined 0 of 8. You rarely see that with a Michigan State team that doesn't necessarily rely on threes, but they're pretty efficient one of the more efficient three-point shooting teams, I think top 10 in three-point efficiency across college basketball. And I would also expect a little bit of shooting regression for Kansas State's three-point defense because overall they're giving up a 29.7% clip on the season. Now that's over a, obviously a long span of time. So you could say, wouldn't regression have come at this point? But just from the notion that you would expect Michigan State to shoot better against a no-middle defense, kansas state is a little bit more vulnerable when it comes to the mid-range game which again michigan state does run those pin down screens for walker and hauser a lot but i would expect michigan state especially walker and akins to get some more of those threes to drop now the concern i do have for michigan state is a little bit of a downgrade here for the spartans the wildcats Rank number 44 in adjusted tempo on Kempom, and that speaks to just them wanting to play up tempo. We saw it against Kentucky yesterday with those sick passes from Marquise Newell, the Keontae Johnson, especially on the fast break. Michigan State's transition defense. Well, they don't necessarily crash the offensive glass a ton. I know Sissoko's a pretty good rebounder, but they do try to get back. But even with that being said, not a great transition defense, and I think shot quality can speak to that too. So if Kansas State's able to control the pace here and dictate the pace with Noel operating in transition against Tyson Walker, that is, then I think K-State has the advantage, again, if they're able to speed things up. But in the half court, you get a really good on-ball defender in A.J. Hogarth against Noel, and I think that favors Michigan State. So the line to me is about right per my projections and just with this getting steamed up about a point, I think it's gonna settle at around one and a half, two come tip time on Thursday, early Thursday evening. But I do favor Michigan State from a matchup standpoint if they're able to keep things more so in the half court.
0: Yep, I'm with you. Michigan State is going to be how I will be playing this as well. And to your point, Kansas State, definitely one of those teams that has gotten lucky in terms of their three-point variance against. We're expecting teams to be shooting 4% better against them from deep across the entire season. So uh, that's a pretty serious amount. It amounts to about, you know, .06 points per possession more for their entire defense this year in our regression stats and you mentioned it I mean the shots that they were allowing in that last game kind of indicated to us that Kansas State should have lost so might be sitting here on a little bit of luck and we've seen that teams that tend to win on those luck scores can be a little bit overpriced in the market. So I tend to think that this could be a letdown for Kansas State. Michigan State played a little bit more of a reliable game. What really stood out to me is K-State allowing Kentucky to score in the 86th percentile nationally for the entire season against them and still coming away with a win while they scored less effectively. So if they allow for Michigan State to score that effectively, I don't know if they're able to shoot their way into a win, which is essentially what happened I mean I, I literally tweeted about it Eli Kansas State was hitting some of the most ridiculous shots for a few minutes there in that second half to really propel, propel them to even be in a scenario to get that win so uh, you know What I've seen in this game for the, what, 140 days we've been covering it this season is it's very hard to have multiple performances like that in a row. We've seen players like Jalen Pickett try to give that a go, and some guys can do it. Trust me, Noel will play very well, but he's going to need everybody else to continue to outperform expectations if they want to get past Michigan State. And I think betting
1: against overperforming expectations is is a smart way to play it. Not to play devil's advocate, because we both of our numbers do side with Michigan State, but... In terms of contested shot making, Michigan State does it too with with Walker and and Hauser, especially from behind the arc. And Holger, to an extent, I would say Tyson Walker is the best contested shot maker on the Spartans. So you can make the case that, yes, Marquise Noel hit some difficult shots against Kentucky. Walker does it seemingly every game, and he did it against Marquette too. I think a contested mid-range jump shot. That layup that he hit too down the stretch in the last few minutes I don't know how he got that over Marquette's defense. That was that was wild. So the guy is is elite. I, I think you could put him in that category and hitting contested shots. We saw it in East Lansing. I think it was on Presidents' Day, maybe Martin Luther King Jr. Day, against Purdue, where he was hitting some ridiculous contested shots down the stretch. So it goes both ways. But I do agree with you that regression should, keywords should, be coming for Kansas State. We see it all the time. The motivational, because someone's going to bring this up. You're going to hear it on some podcast. Someone's going to tweet it out. And again, I don't want to like necessarily even spend a minute on this point, but Marquise Noel going back to the garden, you you could hypothetically say it's, it's a motivational factor, but that can also completely play against a player from nerves. You're going back home. I think they said on the broadcast that he hasn't been home in three years in New York. That's me saying either way, it could play one way yeah, or the I, other, or it could have no, no effect on the game.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know if you watched those rims in the Big East tournament. I don't know who's making shots if they didn't replace him. I mean, it was just... <laughs> brick city out there so i don't know if if that continues there was a really strong under trend in that tournament so you could see that hit and i i wouldn't be shocked to see noel maybe miss a few it's it's a lot of nerves there's a lot of also you know something that doesn't maybe get taken into effect is the the audio not the audio what am i talking the acoustics (laughs) in madison square garden are unlike anything i mean noel playing of course in in the little apple now to the big apple but He's from here, but he was at Little Rock. Little Rock, Little Apple, Big Apple. Marquise Noel's (laughs) journey has been awesome, but could be nerves. I think we're going to get a great game. It's an early game. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked to see this one start a little slow, though, uh, if I had to make a a gut wager on the
1: total. So, five seconds here. Just gut reaction to my question. Would you look to play, and you'll be at the Garden, so you'll be a little ahead of the the books on on your mobile device in theory, depending on what kind of reception you get. Would you consider playing a live over if it is a slow start?
0: Yeah, I would. I would. I do think that these teams will probably get into it in the second half, probably see the defensive intensity lower a little bit. I think what we've seen in these tournaments, you talked about the percentage of unders. Well, he was even higher in the first two days, right? And as the better teams start to remain, you get a little bit more offensive efficiency, guys who can make shots, guys who are hot making shots, teams that are effectively scoring right now, playing their best ball, are still here. So I think overs will continue to trend a
1: little bit. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate a live over if it does start slow for sure. I'm a little jealous of you going to the garden, but at the same time, and I guess I was traveling, so you take into account too the just going, you know, having to go from one city to another, going down south when I went to the Final 4 last right, year in right, New Orleans. Yeah. I want nothing to do with traveling this March. Absolutely <laughs> zero travel. I want to sit on my damn couch and watch basketball because nope. we are both yeah. see I say this, we are both exhausted, but I was thinking about this before the podcast, man. Like, we are both so freaking lucky like, to be breaking these games down. I am so <laughs> excited for the Sweet 16 to the Elite Eight this weekend. So, yeah. just a note there. I, I, we're not complaining. I'm not complaining by any
0: means. No, of. no, no. We, we're, we're lucky enough to both work covering one of the most entertaining sports out there. I mean, you know, I, I was literally before we got on camera, right, I was telling you how awesome it has been being a part of Shot Quality since yeah. July. We're, we're really excited for everything we're building over there. And it was actually a really great weekend. We had some great shout-outs. Our, our bracket's doing great. So, like,
1: we can't complain. Shock quality is going to be a household name, hopefully shortly. And speaking of shock quality, thank you very much for the reminder, Justin. <laughs> Looking at the Sweet 16 shot quality rankings, Kansas State, in terms of adjusted shot quality ranking per the website, Kansas State ranks number nine, and yep. Michigan State ranks number 14. So I guess 30 seconds here. I gave you five <laughs> seconds for the, for the live overcap. Cause yeah, I yeah. do want to get to Arkansas UConn Ooh. when someone says to you, okay, Michigan state third ranked team per the shot quality sweet 16 rankings. Why are you betting Michigan state? Right, right,
0: right. Well, Look, I'll tell you something that's really important in college basketball. You know it, Eli. Everyone knows it. It's about how the matchups work. And, you know, if we were just, I guess, sort of put Kansas State and Michigan State against the average opponent, this is where the rankings kind of would start to come into play, how you see them when you look at just a a power ratings type system. But the thing is is that you're not playing an average opponent. You're you're playing an opponent with specific skills. And so when we handicap the games just because one team is better than another doesn't necessarily mean they're unable to defend feet the better rated team in shot quality, especially when maybe the worst rated team is better at defending, you know, the thing that the opponent does well, right? So if you have a team like Kansas State who, you know, might be taking some of those contested looks, if Michigan State's going to be good at defending the off-dribble three, it's going to lower our expectations on what Kansas State's going to produce versus what they might have done in their body of work for the season, which is where these ratings are really taken from. So you need to separate the entire thing from, you know, the single game and and try to use what you know from the season to predict how they're going to play, not just which team's better against, you know, any random
1: group of five you put out there. Enough said great explanation. So let's move on to UConn and Arkansas out in Vegas for the West region. A lot of people thought before the bracket was released that UConn will be playing at the garden for the regional semifinal and regional final. If they were placed in the East region, that's not the case. They're in the West region, a jam-packed West region. UConn around a a three-and-a-half point favorite. A little bit of juice towards UConn at some spots. Opened four-and-a-half, so the line got bumped down, I would assume, Arkansas money on, what was it, Sunday night. And the total is sitting at 139. So, Justin, I want to tackle this thing first. So, on the surface, when... I'm looking at the script of this game potentially playing out of my head. I think a couple factors would make me lean towards UConn just outright in this game. You think about the Hogs having the 40th attempt rate in terms of frequency of shots at the rim. So whether that's dribble drive or just shooting the basketball at the rim, that's per shot quality. And UConn is a top 20 uh, interior defense in terms of two-point field goal percentage you have two of the best defensive bigs in college basketball led by Adama Sinogo and Donovan Klingen Klingen has a fourth get this I know the minutes load is low like 30 35 percent so therefore the percentage like the volume would probably be less if he's playing 25 30 minutes a game just by nature of variance over a given game Obviously, a percentage is going to be a little more jacked up when you're playing less minutes. But Klingon with a 14.7% block rate is ridiculous. Five blocks against combined against Iona and St. Mary's. And the Huskies also run a lot of stagger ball screens, whether it's with Jordan Hawkins, uh, whether it's stagger or pin down screens for Hawkins or Calcaterra off the bench, even Caravan too. But he's pretty good. Yeah, I would say that applies too, for Caraban and Arkansas's perimeter defense. It got a little bit exploited in SEC play when it comes to those specific sets. But I was breaking this down, this game down for about forty-five minutes once I adjusted some of my numbers for this game. I cannot wait for it, considering I have UConn futures, UConn national title futures at fifty to one, and Arkansas regional futures at twenty to one. So when I dig back into it, it's kind of like a final four for me, even though it's not a final four. So I can't really do anything about it. I just have to sit there with my two futures bets, which is fine, but Arkansas's length to me down low, they have the depth. Not only do they have a length with one big kind of like with St. Mary's where there isn't a lot of reliable depth behind the Gales starting center, but Arkansas has the bigs with Kamani Johnson and the Mitchell twins, especially Makai who played really well in that Kansas game at both ends of the floor. And obviously I mentioned it with Kamani Johnson having that huge offensive rebound against Kansas, but I think they have the length to bother Sanogo in the low block on the low post. And we saw how effective he was off the dribble too against St. Mary's and Iona. The guy really put it together, but UConn also turnover issues. They didn't really come into play, even though UConn had 14 against St. Mary's just because the Huskies were truly dominating that pace. Tristan Newton had four turnovers against St. Mary's UConn was able to limit their turnovers against Iona. I believe it was under double digits somewhere around nine, but this Arkansas pressure D very good at forcing turnovers per Kempom and Devo Davis. See, it's not just Davis, who's a very good on-ball defender in his own right. Jordan Walsh proved a lot to me in that Kansas game. Again, especially running around shadowing Jalen Wilson for much of that second half. And Anthony Black was shadowing Grady Dick for a lot of the second half too. Now, when UConn gets in transition, similar to when Kansas got in transition, it's a little bit different because then you get mismatches or potentially you get Hawkins freed up. But if Arkansas is able to keep... UConn to have court more because their own defense is disruptive, then you're talking about those, the ability for Musselman to have Wall shadow Hawkins, which I think is very likely to happen, and also I would expect a little bit of three-point shooting regression for UConn and Jordan Hawkins for that matter, because UConn shot 10-22 from three against St. Mary's, and Hawkins was four or five, so just by nature of The game, and you pointed this out on Twitter, Dukas going down for St. Mary's played a big role in that game, probably more so than the average batter or the average viewer would lead to believe just based on the way UConn dominated in transition in the second half. I know Hawkins being in foul trouble over the first 30 minutes played or 20 minutes played a bit of a role. The one thing I do want to say, because people might say UConn could shoot very well in the Sweet 16. That doesn't mean they're going to shoot poorly just because they had a good game. Going back to the Sweet 16 last year when Arkansas took on Gonzaga, because you guys pointed this out on shot quality in that game. Gonzaga, or you weren't with the company, but... I know Simon did. Gonzaga shot five of 21 from three against Arkansas in the Sweet 16. It happens. Variance happens. And I'm not saying that I'm capping solely off variance, but if Arkansas is able to keep UConn a little more in the half court and not let Jordan Hawkins loose on those transition possessions for UConn, I think you're more than likely not going to get variance for UConn's three-point shooting. With that being said, Arkansas turnover issues could come into play, but the other area that I do think Arkansas's offense will have an advantage in, or I guess the first area that I'm rolling along here with, is mid-range because that's a bit of a liability for UConn's defense, and you think about how well Devo Davis and Ricky, especially Ricky Council, shot in the mid range in the second half of that game i think they're able to exploit uconn's defense there the other key is how is this game officiated because that's going to be a huge key in terms of who gets assigned to this game because uconn ranks number 319 across college basketball and opponent free throw rate and arkansas with a top 25 free throw scoring rate so if or just free throw rate in general so if they're able to get to the free throw line that could very well come into play. So that's kind of a very thing too, but it also points back to metrics. Last, actually two more points here, Justin, and then the floor is yours for as long as you want. Eric Musselman, I don't think it's as big of a coaching advantage as another matchup I'm going to bring up later on in terms of the Sweet 16 games, but I do think prep-wise, Musselman has the advantage over Dan Hurley. Not as much as two days of prep, go, or I guess a day of prep from the... Round of 64 to the round of 32 facing Norm Roberts and not Bill Self. But I do think I would give Musselman the edge there. Back-to-back elite eight appearances for the Hogs. And the last variable that no one is talking about, man. I know UConn has some very good defensive guards. But Arkansas is in the Sweet 16. And they have gotten nothing from Nick Smith Jr. Nothing. If he does anything in this game... I think Arkansas has a very good shot to go to the Elite Eight. So the floor is yours, whether you want to hate on my comments or agree with some or however many you are. <laughs> I think
0: you've made some really interesting points. There's a couple I definitely want to touch on. Uh, you know, I think the biggest one for me with this game, though, is that is the stuff at the rim, right? So you mentioned it. Uh, you know, Arkansas goes to the rim the 40th most in the nation per R. Uh, understanding of their distribution 22nd uh, in terms of converting those attempts and Yukon's 16th in terms of defending them so this game really feels like it's going to be one at the rim whoever can be a little bit more effective getting the proper looks uh, you know using what they do well to create those looks I mean Yukon uh, runs a lot of action off of screens Arkansas is actually pretty good at defending that so look for that to be an interesting place for this especially UConn. Walsh. Yeah, exactly. Look for a good, like, battle there to see how that screen action for UConn turns into points. That's going to be a big deal. If they can't get buckets off of that, it might be tougher for them. Um, You know, key for me, for Arkansas, they need to limit those isolation possessions. They end up in ISO a little bit too much, and I think it honestly contributes to some of their bad shot-making metrics that we have. They take really good shots, but their shot-making has been pretty rough, and it's because they find themselves in bad situations. But, um, you know, the last couple games, that's actually been picking up so the cool thing about shot quality is you get to see that this team has actually been playing to a level that could beat Kansas that could beat these teams that has a chance to beat UConn but haven't been making some of the shots we expect them to that they've developed off of good looks so if they're starting to get those shots to fall like you're saying if they get contribute contributions from key players there's not much you can do, right? They've almost been a little bit unlucky. And another thing you mentioned was like handicapping off of variance, and how that's not something necessarily you wanna do directly. But I think, I think you have to do it indirectly, right? Like you, you need, and what I mean by that is like you need to take a look At, you know, Arkansas, or sorry, at UConn, expected to lose the shot quality to St. Mary's by 10 points. That's what we expected. They won that game, you know, probably off that injury, it changed a lot of things. But St. Mary's were developing good shots. They were taking good looks and they weren't hitting. So there might be a little bit of a feeling in the market that UConn is this dominant team. I mean, there were times where it felt like, you know, it was boys versus men out there after the injury for St. Mary's. And that's what happens when you're like, focal point of your offense gets hurt. So I wouldn't be, and and I'm not, I'm not rushing to go bet UConn based on that performance. If anything, I'm hesitating. I'm going to take the points on Arkansas because I do think that you're probably still buying a little bit low on them. I mean, we saw some of that awesome defensive effort. I don't think that's really the defense that St. Mary's brought against UConn. I think there's going to be a bit more of a size challenge for the Huskies. Um, Arkansas definitely has the size to compete with anybody in the field. The defenders to compete with anybody in the field. This is going to be the first tough challenge for UConn, and I think four points is just going to be too much. Um, It's it's really going to be about Arkansas kind of limiting those good looks, and and UConn honestly the threes. You know, Arkansas can defend them. UConn is the better shooting team, but if Arkansas can limit the threes, yeah. (laughs) It's not really close. But yeah, it, it, the thing is is that you, Arkansas does have the defense to stop the shooting. That's what allows them to stay in games. They aren't the best three-point shooting team, but they defend the three well enough that teams aren't able to just blow them out by hitting everything from behind the line. I I do think the four is going to be a lot when all is said and done. I'm not promising Arkansas advances. I do think UConn probably squeaks by, but yeah, give me, give me the four, give me the four and a half. Uh, It's going to be, it's going to be a great game either way. I know you got a little bit of conflicting future tickets here, but (laughs) I think at the end of the day, we're going to enjoy some of the best basketball we've seen in the tournament from this game.
1: I can't believe I'm saying this and maybe it's more so Texas than UConn, but man, how do you feel about this as a gambler, right? When when you bet something at a good... Maybe this is just my narcissism when (laughs) truly coming out on on this podcast, when you bet a future, right, at a good point or you do something right in your life at a good point that nobody else is talking about. And then it comes, you know, the big stage, the big dance. And everybody jumps on you, God. And everybody jumps on Texas. And I'm like... Hello Arkansas, like let's Let's go Hawks, even though I have these two futures. Any, any narcissism for Justin Perry?
0: Yeah, I mean, a little bit here and there. I At the end of the day, it's really just about like trying to get things decently correct. I mean, I had a situation last year where you know my only two futures on the entire season last year, Eli, were, I think, Kansas and Nova. So, of course, meeting in the final four, I was just sitting there like a little bit of, I told you so. I am on Tennessee this year, so a lot of narcissism there for me. I've been thumping my chest pretty loud. <laughs> Loudly on them, even with the Zakai Ziegler injury, people overblowing that, saying that they don't have one of their best guards, how are they going to run their offense like got to score on them first. So uh, a little, a little, I try to keep ego out of it. You know, that's the beauty of letting the numbers do the work is that I, I try to do as little like emotional handicapping as I can. I just keep the emotions for the results.
1: I, I respect it. I respect it. So I guess I have a little bit of an edge or not an edge because narcissism is Maybe. not a good thing at life. Maybe. Who knows? But we just broke down Arkansas and UConn. Now over to good transition here. Over to Yerval's second game at the Garden on Thursday night. Tennessee, anywhere between a four and a half, five and a half point favorite against Florida Atlantic. You hit on. (laughs) I know where you're going. So total 131 and a half after opening 133. So point and a half movement down towards the under, or at least just in the market in general. So I'll give you the floor here first, Justin. Tennessee and FAU. Mm, Yeah. I mean, look, I shot quality is going to sit
0: here and we're going to project this one to be pretty big. We have 75 to 62. So almost about it's, it's comes close to about 12 and a half, 13 points for our projections. And look, I understand, you know, FAU does a lot, but I'm personally handicapping this one at around nine points. I really think Tennessee has this like, massive defensive advantage here. They're a top 11 defense in our ratings. And honestly, FAU coming in with the 60th best offense, I'm not really sure that, you know, they've had the type of test that Tennessee is going to throw at them. I thought Memphis played a decent game, but really there were some, some questionable things that went on in that game in terms of how they were stopping some of the Kendrick shooting Davis getting hurt. I know. Right. I mean, that's such a huge deal, right? When they were like getting some momentum, just spraining that ankle, didn't have the same bounce the rest of the game. And, and you know, obviously FAU knew it. So it, it kind of changed the composition of that one. Of course, FDU giving them a run for their money, you're going to sit there and you're going to tell me that if FDU can do it, Tennessee can't. I just, I don't know. People seem to be sleeping on this Tennessee team round after round. They just handled Duke. Um, I, I feel like they're coming in in a perfect spot fau does a little bit of everything well but tennessee defends everything well like i'm i'm scrolling through the stats here you know the only thing that they seem to kind of allow a little bit of like a a weakness point is like mid-range or isolation but i tend to think it's because they're focusing on the more valuable shots uh in terms of catch and shoot threes they're a top 50 defense off the dribble threes top 75 defense transition top 100 i mean you can kind of get into it everywhere Uh, They just have guys that are going to impact your shot making. And I just don't know if FAU is going to come correct for this battle. Their offense, like I said, do plenty of stuff well. 11th highest rim and three rate, 45th best shot selection, really nice spacing. But all of that's been done against the Conference USA and some, you know, not so great opposition in this tournament, so I'm just going to expect Tennessee to come in here and really just shut them down defensively. I don't, I would don't like the over at all. I would definitively lean under. I think my best bet for this. Would, yeah, I just, I don't. I think this is a slow it down game. This is a Tennessee just thrown in, into the mud, uh keeping it low scoring. Shot quality does have it at 136, but I think the market's a little bit correct in having it under that at the moment
1: good points on Tennessee's defense for sure. Obviously this is one of, if not the best defensive team in college basketball with or without Sakai Ziegler. We saw that against Duke. Now the one point I'll contend with you on is Tennessee's three point defense. All the metrics you brought up per shot quality, obviously make a ton of sense, but The three-point defense overall, allowing a 26.4% clip, it's got to go up at some point. You guys, per shot quality, it should, even though they do defend, what is it, 31, you said? 31, 7% expected increase based on the shot selection this year. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's wild. So, again, if Janelle Davis and Martin are hitting threes for FAU, then I think this total might go over here. Now, I'm not saying I'm betting it. Because for a team that I'm not super confident in, and I'll get to why here in a second, just variance-wise, I would rather stay away from this game on the side or the total if you're going to bet it. And that's because, now I know FAU is kind of the antithesis of a Liberty, but this matchup, like just from a guard play, like this is, FAU has very good guards. General Davis, one of the better mid-major guards in college basketball. Martin Elijah Martin, a very, very athletic guard too. But then you think about the size and I know Memphis didn't take advantage of it as much as they'd like really only in the second half was Memphis able to start to generate those second chance shots. And honestly, FAU got their fair share of second chance shots in the second half, but Tennessee's length to me is going to be the deciding factor here because Tennessee with the seventh highest offensive rebounding percentage across college basketball because of Kamwa and Adu, we saw how good. Kamal was in the second half on top of the fact that he was spacing the floor too. And Tennessee also will want to slow down the pace. So to your point about the total potentially going under uh, the Vols with the, with the bottom 85 adjusted tempo, it's going to boil down to is FAU speeding things up because that's what the Owls want to do. Or is Tennessee dominating the glass and therefore slowing down FAU's attack. And that's why I would just, it's a complete pass for me if I were to bet on this. And again, to the Liberty point, because they're able to slow down the pace, so it's the opposite of FAU. FAU wants to speed you up and play the opposite style of pace as Tennessee. Liberty wants to slow quick opponents like an SEC team that they might face opposed to Tennessee because Tennessee is... The antithesis of a lot of SEC teams that play up tempo like in Alabama. But then you see Liberty get dominated physically in the second half of games. And that kind of worries me when I think about the script.
0: Yeah, no, I I fully agree with you. I think that the physical aspect is just something that FAU probably just doesn't run into. This is SEC level, uh, you know, bang them down low type of basketball with the defense that has really stymied out of conference opponents a lot more. I was just taking a little peek at those regression numbers in conference. Tennessee only expected to be allowing a 4% higher three-point rate. So they and this is where, honestly, I, I think as I've been with shot quality for a while now, something that started to really present itself to me, you know, being literally, I would say, fluent in the language of SQ now is the duality of these metrics, right? So you see a 7% expected increase in defensive, uh, you know, three-point rate allowed for Tennessee. and And you start to sit there and say, well... You know, are we really seeing something that should regress to a norm or are they just routinely outperforming their defensive expectations? I think we saw this really firmly with Iowa, who was a top like 10 rated shot quality team this year, but you wouldn't know it. Right? They developed good shots, but they couldn't hit anything. And and even though that they continue to develop good shots, they also continue to lose. So their MO kind of just became really good looks but no results. And I think maybe, and this is why I like this Tennessee team, that maybe we can't necessarily personify what makes that defense so good in terms of, you know, the numbers that influence shot quality. And so you see these very, like, staunch and and kind of shocking, you know, regression stats for them to be allowing 6% more on almost every shot type on defense. I think, if anything, they're just actually that good. So I'm going to hang my hat on it. I'm going to say even though there are regression numbers pointing towards them doing worse on defense, this is really just a team that knows how to outperform on defense, even things that maybe shot quality can't perfectly quantify yet. I mean, this isn't you know a 40-year-old metric. This is a three, four, <laughs> five year old metric that we're still improving every single day. So uh, maybe that's some of the value with having someone who sits there and logs thousands of hours during the season using it. But this might really just be a team that expectations aren't exactly the perfect way to sort of measure them. I mean, we see players like that all the time, like Kevin Durant. I know this is a college podcast, but Kevin Durant routinely outperforms his shot quality expectations. He's just that good. So I'm not really trying to say that, you know, Tennessee is the Kevin Durant here. I know we we're literally about <laughs> to probably talk about Texas, but. Uh, I, I don't know. I think this defense is legit and I'm willing to hang my hat on the third best defense remaining in this tournament. Maybe even second because UCLA is probably in that
1: conversation with Clark who's no longer there. I think I have a decent comp in terms of the points you're making about Tennessee. Now it's, it's not as you, you could say that Texas tech's three point defense on that 2019 runner up team regressed a little more. And, and maybe the numbers kind of even themselves out over the course of the season, Texas tech gave up a 29.8% three point clip to the opposition. so That's obviously low. And you can make the case that that, could be or should have been due for more regression or was due for regression. Just going back to the title game against Virginia, Virginia shot 45.8% from deep. So that kind of tells you all you need to know about that. Then Texas Tech's defense started to clamp down a little more when Chris Beard adjusted in the second half. And that kind of leads to a point later on that I want to hit on. Tennessee allowed the fifth highest, this is this season, fifth highest three-point scoring rate in SEC play. Texas Tech, that season, that plays a no-middle defense so is more susceptible to open threes or just better looks from three to the opposition, allowed the fifth-highest three-point scoring rate in Big 12 play. So I think it's a, a really good comp because while those numbers could be, should be due for regression, you also just have really good athletes at that end of the floor. Tennessee's Zakai Ziegler meant a lot to them. At that end of the floor with his ability to jump passing lanes. But is a very good on and off ball defender across I the depth. board. So they have the depth too, you know. Right. That's our breakdown for Tennessee and FAU. We have spent a lot of time on games. More so than I thought. So <laughs> speed it up. <laughs> exactly. This is uh this is a great podcast, though. So hopefully if you're listening still and I haven't turned it off. Hopefully you enjoy it. Over to the finale on Thursday night in the West region. Great, great game rematch. Of the twenty twenty one final four game COVID year when Jalen Suggs hit the half court shot. Oh man. To win the game. What was that? Overtime or straight up overtime, right? Not I think double it was. overtime. Yeah. 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 So UCLA actually bumped up a little bit before we start recording this podcast. They opened that around minus one and a half. Now up to two, two and a half, depending on the shop, total one forty five. And looking at injury wise, because that's obviously a huge factor, David Singleton exited the Northwestern game with the ankle injury. He spoke to it after the game, said he's okay, but you never know how it's going to go over the course of the week. It might stiffen up. It's an unknown variable when you're capping this, but the fact that it was not crutches, like, that's a good sign, you would think. Adem Bona, UCLA's five-star freshman big, shoulder injury that kind of reappeared in the second half, and now he played down the stretch. So again, an unknown variable, but leaning towards, you would think, after four or five days of rest, four plus days of rest, you would think he'd be okay for this game on Thursday night. And Jalen Clark, obviously, the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year, arguably the best on-ball or off-ball guarding in the country defensively out for the season. Now, Bona and this UCLA post-defense, starting there, I think they match up great against Drew Timmy, who, if he's getting away with those hooks on Bona, like he did against TCU, then maybe, maybe Gonzaga squeaks by. But I think the post-up defense for UCLA is a big advantage for Mick Cronin's defense. Like you mentioned, UCLA with one of the better, second-best, best defense, even without Clark right there with Tennessee. And it's interesting, the two best defenses in college basketball without two of their best defensive guards in Ziegler and Clark. And I also think UCLA has a major advantage at the rim, especially in those pick-and-roll sets because that's Mick Cronin's offense. It's ball screen pick-and-roll with Bono, but especially Jaime Jaquez, who is, I think you could say that he's has among bigs in college basketball, the best footwork, or at least among fours when it comes to generating his own shots. But even in just pick and roll sets, I think UCLA has a big advantage because Gonzaga doesn't have that rip protector. I've hammered that home a ton this year like they did last year with Chet Holmgren. So big thing for the Bruins, Hawkes has to stay out of foul trouble on Tababona, but I think Hawkes is much more important. I know that's obvious. He's one of the best players in the country, but it's definitely worth noting. And if UCLA can be efficient enough in those pick-and-roll sets or just with their half-court offense in general, get open threes if their pick-and-roll is efficient early on, then you're going to see the Bruins really start to control the pace, especially in the second half if they're up with Tiger Campbell, one of the best point guards remaining and best point guards overall in college basketball. Almost fun fact, almost committed to DePaul, or he did commit to DePaul, my alma mater, and then left abruptly, sadly, to UCLA. So, Justin, your take on the game. This is, you know, you you said that there was a game you're staying off of. This might be it
0: for me. This is a tough one. I think, honestly, I might lean towards the over. I really think that this Gonzaga Even with team— pace? Yeah, you know, I think it's just one of those sneaky games where we're going to see some decent three-point shooting. Um, I was pretty impressed by what Gonzaga was able to do with their shooters. And if both of these teams are just on, this is like one of those games where I was talking about like a little bit more of that like reliable offensive efficiency from teams who have been battling through, uh, able to score against some of these other tournament teams. I know it's a little tough. Uh, the line, where is it at right now? It's uh, spreads two and a half, totals 145 and a half currently yeah I mean we're gonna uh, we're gonna actually make this one all the way up to 150 on Sq I think that probably even includes the presence of a player like Jalen Clark because our numbers are notoriously slow to adjust due to it being the like, entire seasons body of work um, so I think there should be a good amount of of back and forth between these teams especially in the second half I know it might be a little bit of like that uh, opposite thinking type of take but I don't know. I don't know. I think I think this could end up being a sneaky over. I couldn't tell you on the side. I probably lean towards Gonzaga. It's just this wasn't just going to be one of the, like, have to just watch it type of games for me. I don't think there's, there's really a place where you can, like, lock into an edge in the play style. Both of these teams are very complete. They get reliable shots. Uh, you're talking about 23rd in shot selection for Gonzaga. And then, you know, UCLA a little bit lower in terms of that, 216th but the shot making with guys like Haquez really kind of helps them power through and, and they're really effective on their rim and threes. So 33rd most efficient in the most valuable shot types really helps them stay alive. And, and as I said, second best defensive rating in all of shot qualities, You know, metrics this entire year. Number one was Iowa State. We saw how that went. But, you know, again, this is another one where you look at the regression stats UCLA, a lot of things pointing up on defense, but might just be one of those scenarios where they are routinely able to outperform shot based expectations because of some of the athleticism, uh, some of the X factors that don't really show up in just the quality of the shot. Um, but this is this is just going to be a treat. The Gonzaga offense is really another year of them just being elite in terms of our metrics. Their defense leaves a lot to be desired, though. <laughs> so that's just my my one thing is I think Gonzaga is just always ready to go for like a you know a shootout type game. They just they're always happy to go for a will out gunya score what you want. You can put up seventy eight if we put up eighty two type of thing. So uh, we'll see how it goes. It might end up being at every last point matters type of battle and I'm wrong about the over but I like I like the odds you know and that's all it comes down to I'll I'll, I'll happily take a loss 45% of the time
1: <laughs> and you mentioned how good Gonzaga's offense is that's that's you know to say the least Gonzaga number 1 in adjusted offensive efficiency 75th adjusted defensive efficiency but you said it perfectly their ability to get great shots and also make great shots the shot making is elite and then some mitigates for those defensive woes because their offense on a possession by possession basis is doing things that I guess since what two years ago with Suggs and Kispert and Timmy. Since that team and they were better defensively that year and they were better defensively, especially last year with a rim protector, having a guy that could eliminate things at the rim like Holmgren, which is why the pick and roll sets for UCLA are really important. That's why if I you had a gun to my head and you said, how would you play this game if you had to take anything at all? pre-game or live, I would say look for UCLA live.
0: I agree. I agree. I think think there's a really good shot for you to get some value on a line like that. Um, You know, make sure you're following shot quality. We're putting out those halftime expectation scores. So if you see a good spot... Uh, it might be it might be a good place to do it. I mean, we got <laughs> actually got some flack on Twitter last night with the TCU game because you know we have a, like a relationship now with those Gonzaga fans after that Arkansas game those years ago. Um, <laughs> look, <laughs> Gonzaga—they really they once they start getting a taste of the net a little bit and they start seeing those shots go down, they get pretty electric. We had them pretty massively ahead in the shot quality at halftime, even though they were losing, and of course come back, get it done. Even though I got my heart broken full circle already but uh, it's all right. That was crazy. I'm still like, whew. but uh, yeah, no, I think this should be a, a great spot, honestly, just to watch some basketball. So I, I, I just, the over feels like it could happen. I'm not, not my personal favorite bet for the entire weekend, but probably one of the few totals I feel decently
1: confident in. Yeah, no, I, I I'm with you there. And especially if Kentucky is, you know, hitting shots, like you yeah. said early on in the yeah. game, just in terms of the live angle, really quick that I, mm-hmm. that I mentioned, this is why, watching a game is so important rather than just monitoring on, a, on any sports betting app without watching it. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to be tuned in late on Thursday night, or hopefully you're not asleep by that point. But cause if Hawkins or Bona get in foul trouble, then you're talking about potentially a completely different script no, no, no. when I mentioned the UCLA angle. So you never just want to go in and say, okay, Eli said this, Justin said this, automatically, or whatever capper you enjoy. I'm not saying you have to enjoy either of our takes on any games. Mm. Hopefully one or two. One, but at least 50% hit right here. 50, 50%. Here. <laughs> that's it. There you go. We're 53%, so that's what we oh, strive God. for as betters. Again, you want to watch this stuff. You really want to make sure you have an understanding of what you're watching and what to look for. So if UCLA is down and Bona has, and Haquez are on the bench with three each, With 12 to go, crazy like that, you then stay the hell away. Or don't bet, (laughs) like, you don't have to bet the live angle. I'm just saying, like, eye test is important, too, even though people want to mitigate that. On to the Friday Sweet 16 slate. We have Alabama, San Diego State, Houston, Miami, Creighton, Princeton, and Texas Xavier. I cannot wait for that game. Uh, Alabama up to 7.5 after opening around 6.5 against the Aztecs. Total actually 8 at some spots. Total between one thirty six and a half and one thirty seven and a half. Justin, what say you in the South region? Points
0: and the over for me on this one, Eli. <laughs> I I really like San Diego State. I think that they will give this Alabama team the type of defensive effort that we've been waiting for them to have to overcome. Uh, we've seen San Diego State be very effective. They got it done in the last round. I like the points. I just you know this is going to be one of the first real tests for this Alabama squad. I mean they really lead so many of our metrics You know, number one, in terms of offense, number two, in terms of their rim and three rate, number five, in terms of shot selection, number one, in terms of spacing, they really just have a beautiful offense and, and it's going to take a spectacular effort for San Diego state to get it done. But I think their rim protectors will really alter what Alabama is able to do and give them a shot to stay within the number. Not going to say that they're going to upset them. I just, I think that, you know, there's probably value on it. Obviously I, I actually have them as my leverage play in my bracket. Here to win this game, but I'll be taking the points, and I do think this game goes over. Uh, we have this at 146, 146 and a half, actually, at shot quality, making the final score 75.4 to 71. Uh, so should hopefully be a pretty entertaining one. I do obviously worry about ever predicting San Diego state to score 71 <laughs> points. So I get yeah. why the number is a little bit lower and why people think that's going to, the spreads can be a little bit bigger. It's probably, you know, on the account of San Diego state being expected to score less. Uh, but, you know, their offense rated in the top 50 of shot quality, they don't take nearly enough threes, of course, but very effective at the rim. That's where they're going to have to win this game on both sides of the floor. Floor. I I just think this could end up being a game that Alabama tries to survive instead of dominates, and in those scenarios, I definitely like the points.
1: No, and you can make the case that the spread is inflated because of what Alabama no. did to Maryland for yes. sure. And to your point about three point shooting, and obviously that's a differential from the total. I mean that's that's almost ten points up from yeah. where the total is at some shops. But I I do agree with it from the standpoint of you could get good shooting from San Diego State, and there are a couple of reasons why. You look at the first two games of the tournament for the Aztecs, 10 of 36 from behind the arc. So that might make you wear your San Diego State on top of the fact that you already said it, that this team is extremely consistent offensively. You have one of two of the most, I guess I would pinpoint more so Matt Bradley just because he takes, he has a higher shot Some volume, but shots, yeah. right, he and Trammell are both Jekyll and Hyde when it comes to, Offensive efficiency, especially from three. But because Alabama plays drop with Betty and Clowney, that's where you can get the swing. Whether it's San Diego State covering or potentially winning the game outright because they shoot a ridiculous percentage of three and outshoot their normal efficiency by a ton with Alabama playing drop. That's the difference with a team. Like I go both sides on that because San Diego state doesn't shoot a high volume of threes, but you would expect in a game like this where you kind of need variance to go your way. If you're Brian Dutcher to game plan accordingly and, to have it in your game plan to shoot threes on drop or else you're going to have zero chance of winning the
0: game. You can't, you can't trade buckets with this Alabama team and it's only be taking twos. That's, that's for sure. I mean, it's going to be a great one I fully expect Alabama to advance honestly I think the the money line if you really want to put it down probably ends up being a winner I don't think you're paying a good price but uh look this Alabama team is clearly my opinion the front runner right now to get this done take home the championship uh but this is probably going to be one of their toughest tests and and then hopefully they're facing you know uh, a couple other really tough teams I have them seeing Tennessee in the final four so So I think they should be facing finally some really nice defensive efforts. Maryland, of course, look, they did okay. Uh, You know, that game, what ended as a 22 point win for Alabama shot quality expected only 12. So maybe a little bit of that blowout influencing the market a little bit. We did see this touch eight, as you mentioned, I did take a little extra sprinkle there. I played seven last night. So I reinforced my position a little bit extra at eight, like I tend to do in those scenarios. But Sure. I don't know, shot quality only saying that this is like a 58-60% win rate for Alabama, so uh, nothing's final in college basketball. I, I definitely think San Diego State will make a run. Will it be enough? I'm not sure, but I do think getting 8-7.5 is pretty safe here. One of my favorite bets of the weekend, for sure.
1: To your point, if the Aztecs can keep it close, it's not only with... Potential variance from three for them. Also variance for Alabama, just because Alabama's a high-volume three-point shooting team, too. So maybe just get an off game. Before I get to San Diego State's defense here, I guess it kind of correlates. The Brandon Miller injury is going very much so under the radar. He has a a groin issue, and the efficiency has not been there, shooting-wise. So when I speak to the high volume, that could... No one's talking about that, man. I don't even think I heard it much on the broadcast with... Maryland, Alabama. I don't think so. I wasn't listening to the game as intently as I was others on Saturday night, but it's concerning when you look at his efficiency, especially when you think about a potentially high variance team that takes a lot of threes like Alabama, but the ball pressure for San Diego state defensively could also play a big role in this game with Bradley and Trammell. Two tremendous on-ball defenders against Quinterly and Sears that both can have their fair share of turnover issues. So it's kind of similar to UConn, right? How tight of a game are the refs going to call this? Because game that kind of reminds me of just that point is when San Diego State took on Arizona in the Maui Invitational. And they called Trammell for so many touch fouls in the second half. I was so mad in that game, watching that game. So it's going to boil down to how aggressive can uh, San Diego State's guards be defensively? Yeah,
0: I, I agree. I'm checking out some of the numbers on Miller right now. Uh, against Maryland, he took, I think, 14 shots uh, that well he had sorry he had 21 possessions, uh, nine of them labeled good possessions, five of them labeled labeled bad. Puts him at the 61st percentile. While he has been performing honestly since like the Georgia South Carolina games, he was basically above the top in the top third of percentile ratings for the entire like run. So you're right. There has been a little bit of a dip in efficiency. We'll see how it impacts their play here. Uh, every, every shot's going to matter. If he's, if he's taken 20 shots and really not connecting and has a bad game, it's, it's definitely going to be tough for them. Of course he is, you know, maybe the, one of the bit like most impactful best shot gravity players in the country. You have no choice but to really send defenders at him, and if they start to feel like his jump shot's a little bit weakened, maybe that groin is getting to him a little bit, and they're allowed to sort of, you know, maybe not take him as seriously, close down the paint a little bit more. They doesn't, you know, bring out some of those major defenders for some drives to the rim by auxiliary players for Alabama. Uh, yeah, that could make a a pretty big uh, a pretty big difference. Of course, honestly, the the catch and shoot for for Miller it, is one of the most deadly weapons in all of college basketball. 133 catch and shoot three point attempts rating in the 92nd percentile of efficiency for any player's wow. single shot type in the country also very very potent off the dribble three driving to the basket short mid-range what you really want to force Miller to is the right block post up the long mid-range and any post-up really so get him down low chase him off the three-point line don't give him open shots if san diego state can do that and take away his most effective weapons and also he has a little bit of an off night i think that could open the door for a win otherwise yeah i'm, I'm really just looking for the cover give me those eight points
1: give me those seven points i like it all right on to the midwest region i guess again just chronological order for the friday sweet 16 card houston Down to about a six and a half point favorite at some shops after opening in the seven, seven and a half range on Sunday night after Miami knocked off Indiana. Total around 138 after opening at 139 and a half. So when I look at this game, going back to my rant about Indiana, my God, I mean, again, Miami grabbing 20 offensive rebounds reattaining 51% of their misses is absurd. And I don't expect that to carry over, even though Houston isn't as dominant on the defensive glass as they are about in terms of creating their own second chance opportunities, which I'll get to here in a second. I don't think Omira is going to be as efficient and Wong is going to be able to crash as much because you also want to get back in transition, against Houston. That's the other part when we when we talk about matchups and adjustments. I would think Laranega wouldn't send as many guys at the offensive glass because you don't want to let Sasser and Shed leak out, especially since they do have time to get back from their respective injuries. Sasser dealing with the, the groin injury and Shed with the knee. I actually think they looked okay, better than I thought, against Auburn on Saturday. And then the other mismatch for me, not only with the offensive glass, again, this is arguably... Over the last four or five years, the best game rebounding team when it comes to creating second chance shots in Calvin Sampson. Sampson enforces every single game, no matter the opponent, to get to the offensive glass, lapsing his transition defense a little bit, or again, not being as concerned with that area. The pick and roll coverage for Miami, because not only do they rank bottom 30 overall on shot quality when it comes to pick and roll. It's bad, but they also rank bottom 30 on synergy. So this is a team that can get completely exploited in pick and roll. And I would and expect that
0: goes to that pick and roll a lot. Tw- yep. Top 25, top 26 in terms of the frequency
1: there. So they're going to test right. it. Right with with Walker, the five star freshman, and Roberts. So I yeah I I think Houston has a lot of mismatches here. The line might be even at six and a half, still a little inflated. But I also think the nature of the way the Indiana game went down, like I like I've hit on a lot in the second half with those second chance opportunities and Indiana's energy and effort being down as well. That's that's my concern with the number moving towards Miami. By the time this line closes, I don't think it's going to get down to five and a half or six, but you can make the case that Houston might be a little undervalued. I agree.
0: I'm going to be laying the number. If I already got the six and a half, I'd love to maybe touch six up again, but uh, no, I think this is a good spot for them. Houston uh, usually performs very well against teams that cannot handle that pick and roll ball screen action. And also the off dribble three point frequency that Houston has is definitely going to give uh, a little bit of, yeah, it's just going to give them trouble. It's just, again, we look at what, uh, Miami kind of does against that. They're 333rd in defending the off the catch and shoot 3 and they're 165th in defending the off dribble 3. So I think the 3-point shooting is going to be kind of the name of the game in this one, which opens you up to a lot of like variance. right? So there, there's definitely right. a, a scenario here. The distribution's a little bit wider than on a lot of other games because of how Houston's going to just play this. Uh, they're going to try to out-athlete you on the defensive side. Uh, they've shown they really can, can defend Defend almost any shot type. They they don't really have too many problems, right? They they limit you know the rim and three shot quality points per possession, top forty. Uh, the shot selection is top one hundred twenty five. They've actually had some pretty good. You know, shot makers play against them this season. So, uh, looking to have maybe a little bit less luck. But again, this is another team where you go look at those defensive regression stats, Eli, and everything looks like it's supposed to be six percentage points higher. Yep. This is another team that likely is just able to routinely outperform defensive expectations based on the quality of shots. They get in your head, they get in your face. Um, you know, they close out really well. The athletes are bigger here than against some other teams. I, I really like this Houston team. I think people are a little down. We get so much of like this injury uh, media blitz, right? You hear about every little injury. Is this player okay? Is that player okay? Uh, it's, it's definitely t- tough to hear people who maybe aren't super used to gambling on basketball, but no one player is shifting lines five points. Maybe Zach Eady. <laughs> Maybe, but no one player is totally destroying lines. I mean, mid game, it's one thing, right? Because all of a sudden someone really major goes down and a team, you know, essentially game planned around having their, their key offensive uh, guard or something. And all of a sudden they can't operate like, yeah, that makes a little sense. But like pregame, if we know who's going to be in and who's going to be out, you have coaches spending the entire week game planning around who they're going to have available and what they're able to do. I just think that like injuries can get very overblown this this Time of year, and so I'm not really listening to it. Shot quality is projecting this as a 72 to 60
1: win for Houston, so yeah, I'm gonna lay this six and a half. All right, on to the third game on the Sweet 16 board here, and we don't have to spend a ton of time, but I do want to hit on a tease that I mentioned earlier creating around a nine and a half point favorite against Princeton, total around 140. Ryan Brenner, having a huge advantage, literally in terms of size and length and figuratively against WOMA for Princeton, he's the focal point of Princeton's offense. They run a lot of action through the low post through WOMA. So if Princeton's ball screen defense is a big issue against a Creighton team that runs a lot of pick and roll, especially with Kochbrenner and ball screens to get those three-point shots, McDermott is one of the best offensive minds of the country when it comes to getting good three-point looks, then I would expect creating to blow him out. Now, I'm not saying to lay it because it's a pretty big spread, but, and I also hate the term public dog, but you got to think after beating Arizona on a lot of variance and variance is a part of the tournament for sure. Like we hit on with Arkansas, Gonzaga. You mentioned Gonzaga fans beating your guys' mentions last year. And and not only that, but I mean, shooting lights out against Mizzou too. And that's a high variance Mizzou team considering how many threes they take. And you would you would think Shireman bounces back to four, 15 from three in his last couple games and elite shooter that struggled on a couple neutral courts. Now he gets a different one. So the one point that I do want to make, if Creighton goes up against Alabama in the elite eight, because I don't think we're going to have a podcast for the weekend. I'll probably just do write-ups. That's the matchup where I think Alabama's in trouble if Creighton's three-point shooting falls because they can absolutely take advantage of Alabama and drop.
0: Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. Uh, Baylor is, well, not Baylor. Baylor Shireman, not Baylor <laughs> the team, I guess. Look at me. But uh, Creighton is clicking at the right time. Princeton, I mean, you know, you go look at some of their stats here. This offense is intelligently run. And I know it's Princeton. I know it's an easy comp to make there. But it really, I mean, fourth highest rim and three rate in the country. Seventh best shot selection. Uh, 31st highest open three rate. 32nd highest rim and three points per possession expectation. Uh, the problem is Creighton's really good at defending all of that too. I mean, second lowest rim and three rate allowed for the Jays. Uh, seventh best worst shot selection allowed. So, like, really don't let their opponents get good looks. This is exactly the type of defense that I think – Princeton's really going to struggle with because they were able to get good looks and and manufacture good shots and hit them against these other defenses. But Creighton's kind of built around stopping exactly what Princeton's trying to do, in my opinion. Uh, The shot quality model is really hooking into that, projecting this one at 13. Just enough for me to say, if you made me take a pick, I would would lay the points with Creighton. I think they are just in a good spot. If you can handle Baylor and those guards, I just don't really know what Princeton's going to bring to the table. That we didn't see in their last game, so I think they're ready. They're prepared for a similar style of smart guard-heavy attack. They have the size to overpower the front court of Princeton, and honestly, it just feels like the Princeton runs probably up Missouri and Arizona. Both have been called fraudulent this season. Arizona playing with their food too much, I talked about that, and then you know Missouri, who just kind of got in the face of Utah State, limited their threes to get to that game. Just were sort of outsmarted. So I don't really see Creighton getting outsmarted. I know we don't want to spend too much time on this one but yeah give me uh let me lay the points i I think the blue jays are in the form everyone wanted to see at the beginning of the year
1: and quickly here i I know it's number dependent but Mm. would you bet if it's a good enough number per year ratings and and per year model would you bet creighton against alabama um,
0: yeah, I can actually, the cool thing about our model is I can create any matchup even before they happen. So give me like two seconds here. Uh, it looks like our number on Creighton, Alabama is going to be right at about four, 5.3 in favor of Alabama. So if I can get like a seven or an eight, I'm probably looking at Creighton. Um, there's no way it's no uh, way I mean, though. No, it yeah, won't be. Yeah. so I probably would be on Alabama. Honestly, if this thing comes really? in yeah, if this thing, cause this thing could come in at three. Right. I honestly think that's where it might end up being three and a half or four. Okay. Um, I just, I don't know. Obviously it depends how Alabama looks. I'm not going to sit here and say they'll come out and have a terrible game against San Diego state and just, you know, squeak by. I think there's always, you know, a lot of strategy here. Like McDermott's obviously going to be watching to see what actually works in this scenario against them and try to sort of uh, cut out what they clearly maybe are preparing to do for this weekend's games. Um, You know, obviously these teams are prepared for both of their contingent uh, potential uh, opponents for the weekend if they make it. So I think we're going to see some interesting strategy out of McDermott. But uh, if Alabama is able to really get by uh, San Diego State, I think I'm on them, especially if the number's short. But I wouldn't be shocked to see this thing right around four or
1: five and perfectly agree with shot quality. (laughs) To your point about, you didn't say it, but you kind of alluded to it in terms of inconsistent shot making at times going back to the sweet 16 shot quality rankings. Creighton's defense, like you said against Princeton matches up. Well, they have the fourth rated adjusted shot quality defensive rating, but 10th in offense. And that's again, McDermott's great at designing those sets to get good looks, but they're not always hitting shots. And Shireman has been a good example of that. They're not always ultra consistent. So, Over to the final game. And I think this might be surprise to some people. I think it might be the best game of the Sweet 16 matchups. Texas minus four at most shops. Total 148. Going back to, I want to address this first. This is a prime example of shock quality. I got a lot of tweets yesterday at me saying, because you go back to the Penn State game and Penn State, Texas, round of 32. Penn State, I believe, shot 8 at 28 from three. Something like that. Yeah, it wasn't great. Right, Texas shoots three of 13. So to the average viewer's batter's eye, they say, well, Texas didn't shoot well either. So therefore, it's kind of a wash. No, it's not a wash because Texas is bottom 65 in three-point attempt rate. And Penn State attempts the second highest number of threes across college basketball. Penn State, and I was kind of surprisingly excited to look at shot quality earlier today because... You guys had it at Penn State, too. And I was wondering what the score would be. You know, sometimes the eye test doesn't always match up. But you guys had it at Penn State. Just want to start there. I, Penn State should have won that game.
0: Yeah, no, I really think they should have. And a uh, big shout out to Jalen Pickett, another uh, great JP out there. Uh, actually, <laughs> who, you know, big shout out to Siena. I'm a big fan of that school. We have a uh, Siena former coach in our ranks over at shot quality nice. so big Siena fans over at at sq big jalen pickett fans of course that covid year huh. for Siena would have just been something so awesome if the, they actually got to go to the tournament that team was dominant uh but i yeah i mean this is a really interesting spot because texas let penn state do what it wanted in terms of getting that number of threes up but of course sometimes the you know the the cats come home on the variance, and you just don't hit a couple big shots, and and all of a sudden your season's over. That's that's college basketball for you. So, uh, but what it does allow for us to do is maybe like get a look at the idea that Texas isn't exactly going to stop uh, what we're going to see Xavier try to do. And and Xavier has been a really good shot selection team. They do everything very well on offense. And if Penn State was able to get what they wanted, I really do feel like Sean Miller and Xavier will get what they wanted too. And you and I talked about it right before we came on, and I'm sure you're going to have comments on it here. Coaching (laughs) is, this is maybe one of the prime examples of coaching. We saw it maybe hurt Kansas with, you know, Coach Self healing up right now, he's definitely doing better obviously there are bigger things than basketball but ah man this is a spot where the the coaching and and I, I mean, look, Texas is still a really experienced team. So maybe they can overcome it with some of the age and experience they have on this squad. But I, I do think this is a great spot to take the points against Texas. I do think this is, again, really close. I like Texas to advance if you wanted me to choose a side to advance. But I, I do think the points are a little too valuable here to pass up on. I will
1: most likely be on Xavier. Okay. Would you, before I get started, it's yeah. not as long as... Uh, Arkansas Yukon, but I got, got some points. Would you wait uh, on this number for people that are listening earlier in the week?
0: Yeah, yeah, I would. Um, you know, I think what I really like here and why I would wait for the number is that every point is going to matter with a team like Texas, who actually has a super low rim and three rate, 343rd in the country, leads to a lot of mid-range possessions, their ninth most in mid-range attempts in the country. So every single point is going to matter when you take low value shots. Uh, they're not going to be able to rapidly extend leads if they prefer to go take a mid-range shot. So yeah, I like waiting for every possible point And i I don't know if even losing it down to three and a half compromises your position all that much. Of course, four, three and a half. You don't actually uh, lose too much of a, a win condition there. Uh, just the the loss. All
1: right. I'm with you I'm with you on, if you're going to bet Xavier to wait, but so got all the points here. Sorry. Justin. Let's go. Last, let's hear it. Last, last game. Break it down. Last game. Eli, let's go last game. got to hype myself up. So you mentioned the coaching, man. It is, like everything comes down to matchups and obviously the number two is important where a number is sitting at. It's not just matchup oriented. I think Indiana Kent state is a prime example of that. When we broke down the game and shout out to you for betting Indiana on in the open, I believe when it closed a point or so lower and Indiana was in control that game from the jump. And just because the matchup kind of favored Kent state doesn't mean that the number is, is right. And I kind of adjusted my thinking throughout the week when I was looking at Indiana's ability to break the press and and score on fast break opportunities. So, back to this game, though. Coaching mismatch. Monster coaching mismatch. Because the shot selection that Penn State was able to get with Micah Strewsbury, who had a big coaching advantage to me over Rodney Terry, I know people are automatically giving Terry the Texas job. And listen, he has done a hell of a job and definitely deserves a, a monster look. But... This is a horrible matchup if Sean Miller is able to take advantage. And Sean Miller, I know people might have forgotten the name because he was out of college basketball, what, for a year. But when you go back to Arizona and Duke, when I think it was Derek Williams, this is Arizona Coach K, I don't remember what the line closed at, but Sean Miller, Sweet 16 matchup, four or five days to prep for that game, and Arizona... What, were they in control of that game throughout? Or I feel least... like,
0: yeah, it was like one of those late game melts and like Duke just snuck by at the end, right?
1: No, Arizona won. Oh, Pretty they did? Okay, this was,
0: I, I mean, this is probably before I was super deep into it. This was a few years back, okay. right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: this was, let me pull it up here. This was 26, no, not even. This is before that, 2011, the year after right, Duke right, won it right. all. I think this I was, was still you... too much of an NBA fan at that point. Okay. Gotcha. No, fair enough, but... It's a very similar comparison. And Arizona lost to to UConn, a close game in the Elite Eight. Kemba Walker obviously had a big shot in that one down the stretch when we talk about contested shot makers, the great ones. Kemba Walker definitely comes to mind. But Arizona won by 16. Derrick Williams dominated. Arizona dominated that game in transition. Now, I know Xavier ranks bottom 60-70 across college basketball in three-point attempt rate which is along the same lines of Texas but this is where you gotta think I, one or two days of prep. I think Shaw Miller with an aggressive game plan but especially four or five you give one of the best offensive minds in the country. I know he got slammed because of the way he handled the recruiting over the last couple of decades but or maybe last decade just after he left Xavier for Arizona but the way Shaw Miller can coach and the sets he can design, especially off a of prep, And you could take advantage of Texas's ball screen D, especially just their no-middle defense in general because they typically want to pack the paint. You get those three-point looks for Kunkel, and you also get good off-the-dribble three-point opportunities for Soli Boom and Colby Jones, who is a very, very good two-way player. Wing is really coming to his own at that end of the floor after what we saw him do in the NIT. And as good as DeSue was against Penn State... Nunji is going to have an offensive advantage. Number one, because of size. And also because Desu is exploitable in the low post defensively. I know Texas has a really good block percentage. And overall, their two-point defense is good. But Nunji has the post up. Size match against DeSue, and I think he'll be able to score efficiently enough where you get some of those open three-point looks, especially if Xavier is able to get their fair share of transition opportunities. Now, defensively, Xavier is still top 50-ish, which isn't great when you think about adjusted defensive efficiency since Zach Fremantle went down. They've been better because Jerome Hunter is a better defender, but still not, not great when you think about Texas's ability to exploit Xavier, especially in the mid range with Carr and Timmy Allen, but defensively for Xavier, the one area that I do think they'll have an advantage in boils down to matchups is when Sean Miller decides to shadow Marcus Carr with Colby Jones, because I think it will happen with Xavier's length in their lineup because you have Hunter and Nunji at the four and the five. It's not like Jones is a small four. I think he'll have the ability to throw Jones on Carr at some point in this game. And I think it'll pay dividends for Xavier. So listen, I have Texas futures and I don't, yeah, I I don't feel great about this game. I I don't, especially with Miller having the prep edge over Rodney Terry. This isn't Chris Beard prep. This isn't, Chris Beard, in-game adjustments.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree. I think what's really interesting to me here and and speaks to Sean Miller's coaching prowess is just how many of our shot-type stat effective efficiencies are green for the Xavier team. They can really go in and get any type of look they want and they do so efficiently. Uh, Their frequencies obviously tend to lean them towards post-up play. They definitely like that type of reliable move down low. Texas is pretty average at defending the post-up, honestly. Uh, but what I really think is going to be interesting here is is how Xavier defends. I think that's really the X factor in this game. Of course, Literally know, the X factor. Yeah, I mean, we know that, like, <laughs> you know, the offensive unit for Xavier is good. The defensive unit for Texas is good. And we think, you know, Miller probably has the advantage in terms of, like, getting past that. But, like, where maybe, you know, Things might unfurl for Xavier is if they just you know can't stop some of the playmakers that Texas has, and you know it's not like they again they play a really I guess not invaluable or non valuable type of game with the 343rd rim and three rates. so they're not pulling up from three. But again, it's going to come down to the rim play. If if Xavier can really uh, hopefully stay out of foul trouble, that's going to be a big deal for them as well. We saw that impact them a little bit in their last game, but. Uh, yeah, rim play for for Xavier's defense is really my X factor here. I do think taking the points is the way to go. I will be taking the money line to protect a little bit of my future value there, uh, sitting on a thirty to one myself. So should be a great game, great nightcap for for Friday night. But yeah, lean points. And and honestly, I think you know we're projecting this to be seventy two to sixty six. Should be an interesting total. Um, I'm not too sure what I would play there.
1: Okay, and. Great information, man, throughout the pod. That is Justin Perry. You can follow him on Twitter at JustinPerry8. Does betting and product work and content lead for shot quality? You can obviously hear it throughout this podcast that he knows this stuff well and maybe a little too well to his liking at this point of the season, but he's definitely ready to rest up after March Madness. So before we get out of here, Justin, just a couple few reminders. I'll let you have a closing word as well. Remember, thelines.com is giving away another $100 Amazon gift card in our March Madness Pick'em contest. Next one is up on Thursday. For more details, head over to play.thelines.com. Be sure to join the Lines Discord channel to get notifications whenever any of our staff members, including myself, places a bet. And subscribe to the Lines podcast, this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five star review really helps boost the podcast. Justin, closing thoughts.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, obviously, Eli, thank you and the lines for having me. I love being here. Of course, you and I could probably talk for another hour and a half if we really wanted to. We really could. Happily, happily, right? I mean, that's the beauty of this. There is so much to get into. Honestly, my f- closing word is really just for people to understand what shot quality is about. What we're trying to do is really provide that next layer of analysis, expected data on how shots are taken, not you know being so glued to the box score results trying to get a new bit of, you know, another data point to try to triangulate things from real scores, lines that we're getting, and then shot quality scores to really understand how these things sort of weave to tell a tale between what should be expected to happen, what's actually happening, and then what books are trying to tell you might happen. So uh, it's a fun world. We're really excited. We have some really great stuff coming up. Be on the lookout. Shot quality isn't going anywhere. We should have some NBA stuff coming this week. So be on the lookout for that and make sure to follow us over at shot quality bets
1: we'll tease there A A a little tease at shot quality bets on twitter like justin said at shot quality as well on twitter and i know this was a long podcast but that's kind of the beauty of timestamps you could skip over whatever the hell you want and get to the next game because i really think in one last small point i want to bring up in a sec but i think we jammed it the hell in everything for people Incredible slate of games. But one last point here. I know, Justin, you could speak to this. People probably turned it off at this point. But to the few people that are still listening. Please, please, please. I know it's the end of the season. But please stay within your means when it comes to gambling on these games. Because variance is a real thing. I think Gonzaga-Arkansas was the prime example last year in the Sweet 16 where Gonzaga shot like crap from three, and and Arkansas goes on to win the game by almost double digits or double digits as a almost a double-digit dog, whatever they closed at. I think money pushed that up to around double digits late before tip. So please, whether you lose a bet based off of variance or not, do not go above your means. Do not chase. Definitely. I fully agree. I mean,
0: you know, look, we love these games. We treat them like they are like they are the most amazing college basketball, college sports spectacle, maybe basketball spectacle we have right now. But you know, all the sharpest bettors will just tell you it's another 63 games that you're going to put a unit on. Uh, that's how I play it. We're not up in unit size. We're not doing anything crazy. Uh, we're betting the board for fun. I've had I had a nice second round, mediocre first round, and basically treading water. But you know, you got to play it like entertainment. You want to make sure that you are you know in in line to only lose enough that you won't sort of ruin your week, ruin your day. You want to keep a level. Look your process. life. I don't mean to get dramatic. Of course, I, yeah. yeah. No, you don't you don't want to let emotion come in. And I think what's helped me, you know, get to this point where I get to be on a podcast with someone like Eli uh, is is really keeping that emotion out of it. I don't really chase, I make my plays. I try to put in like the full diligence of research every time. I really don't uh, let myself make like quick bets. I don't like try to bet on emotion. I think that's what keeps you surviving longer, and that's really the name of the game.
1: Yeah. Hundred percent. Follow the lines on Twitter at the lines US. Follow me on Twitter. At Eli Herskovich, I hope you enjoyed a long and lengthy Sweet 16 edition. I also think we've given you some good nuggets to kind of give you a sense of direction where we might be thinking about some of these Elite Eight games. I know I'll have write-ups on Justin and the shot quality team will have great content over at lines.com. So before our few listeners still listening to the podcast turn this thing off, another edition of Outside Shots Sweet 16 edition of the March Madness Betting Podcast presented by thelines.com and shot quality. Have a good week, guys.